Welcome to Clin Farm Pod. I'm Alana Webster, Deputy Managing Editor for the ASCPT Family of Journals. My guest today is Dr. Don Willis, Assistant Professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He will be speaking with Dr. Erica Woodall, Professor at the University of Montana and an Associate Editor for Clinical and Translational Science. Welcome to you both, and thank you so much for joining us. Don, you were the first author on the recently published CTS article, COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy, Race, Ethnicity, Trust, and Fear. Erica, what caught your eye about this paper? Thanks. I think what was really interesting with this paper is I work in Montana and I work work with indigenous communities um, around precision medicine and, and pharmacogenetic research. And I was really interesting to hear about how different ethnic groups are feeling about vaccine and, and what the rates of hesitancy were. So yeah, that was what really interesting to me. And Don, I wanted to, um, since we both have fairly um, geographical specific research interests, um, Arkansas itself is a factor for your research. What made this state the right location for your study? Yeah, thank you. Um, so there were a couple reasons we believed Arkansas would be an important place to look at this subject. First was that um, Arkansas has a large population that are at high risk for serious illness due to COVID. So a large population of people who are, for example, over age 65, have heart disease, COPD, asthma, diabetes, BMI is greater than 40. Um, so th- and there's only a couple other states that, that rank higher than Arkansas for the proportion of the population that falls into those high-risk groups. So that's so that was one reason why we thought this could be an important place to look at these questions. Second, Arkansas is a very rural state, and there had been some early research suggesting rural populations had higher rates of vaccine hesitancy. And now, as vaccination programs have been underway for a while, Um, you know, 79% of the U.S. population has had at least one dose of the vaccine. And um, currently in Arkansas, only about 68% of adult Arkansans have had at least one dose. So all of these things for me kind of point in the direction of this, this being an important context to understand more about vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, definitely. Montana is another state that has a large rural population and and certainly some of those areas have pretty low um, um, uptake of the vaccine at this point. Can I ask you another, what questions were you hoping to answer and what hypotheses did you form before undertaking your investigation? Yeah, so we had a few key questions that we wanted to get insight into. First, we wanted to get a sense um, of just what proportion of Arkansans might be hesitant for a COVID-19 vaccine. We also wanted to know how hesitancy might differ across socio-demographic groups in Arkansas. And, and for that, we, we, our hypothesis with it was that it would differ by some of the same factors, research on flu hesitancy and other vaccine hesitancy uh, scholars had shown. So we hypothesized it would differ by age, sex, race, and ethnicity, income, and education. Another question we were interested in answering was how does knowledge or at least self-reported knowledge of how to protect oneself against the virus, how does that relate to hesitancy? How does fear of the virus relate to hesitancy? And also because hesitancy can differ by vaccine, we were curious how general trust in vaccines would be related to COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. 
And our hypotheses here were that COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy would be negatively associated with reporting that you know how to protect yourself against the virus and with higher levels of fear of infection and with general vaccine confidence or just how much people trust vaccines in general. Very interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about your overall findings and some of the limitations of the study? Yeah, absolutely. So overall, you know, we found that the majority of respondents at this time were not hesitant. So only about one in five or 21% reported vaccine hesitancy. And this meant that they said that they would be unlikely or very unlikely to take a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, you know, if you follow this literature, it seems to be changing and, um, and, and shifting. So I, I think one limitation is that this is one point in time in one particular place. That time and place is, is also an important context, as I mentioned before, in terms of why Arkansas is, is a, a good place to look at some of these questions. We found that hesitancy did differ significantly across age, race and ethnicity, income, and education. So respondents who were younger, Black or African-American, lower income, and those who had a college or who had some college or a technical degree had a higher prevalence and odds of vaccine hesitancy than those who were older, white, in higher income brackets or had a four-year college degree. Related to some of the attitudes that we looked at, COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy was positively associated with less fear of infection by COVID-19. So those who feared infection very little or not at all, they had higher odds of hesitancy than those who feared infection to a great extent. And hesitancy was negatively associated with general vaccine confidence. So respondents who reported higher levels of trust in vaccines in general had significantly lower odds of COVID-19 vaccine compared to those that reported low trust in vaccines in general. Regarding some of the limitations, as I said, this is cross-sectional data. Um, We're not determining causality or assessing trends in hesitancy over time. The sample was over-representative of a couple groups, namely women and college-educated respondents. And the way that respondents were recruited was through a research registry that the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences maintains. So uh, so there's some limited generalizability of these results to the state population. Thank you. Yeah, that's that was really great to see that the hesitancy was only one in five. One thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was um, history, systemic racism, and the racism that many people of color still face within the medical field today all play a part in vaccine hesitancy among an already underserved population. And I thought it was interesting that you talked about trust and, and how trust can be a real um, barrier to uptake of, um, of, of medicine and vaccines. Can you expand a little bit upon that? Yeah, so... Absolutely. I, I can expand a little bit. There's, there's some amazing scholars in this area that were doing work in this, uh, on this topic long before I was in particular. Dr. Sandra Quinn at the University of Maryland, she had done a really good job of empirically demonstrating the linkages between racism and vaccine hesitancy for vaccines in general and flu vaccination. And with COVID-19, there's been a lot of discussion about how 
racism is feeding into hesitancy for the COVID-19 vaccine specifically. But this work is still pretty limited to date. And so the direction a lot of discussions are going to this point has been to sort of point toward the past and historical uh, examples of medical racism, which is important, but can also kind of leave us forgetting that the legacies of all of that are enduring. And so, you know, in our article, we're not measuring experiences of discrimination, but this is one direction that our future research is going to be headed so we can better understand how racism in people's lives today can, you know, potentially be continuing to impact the way people view vaccination and vaccination behaviors. So the other thing that you uh, touched on, I think, was that in this study, Black and African-Americans respondents reported both high rates of hesitancy and high levels of fear. So for the majority of the sample, if you had high fear, we would expect your hesitancy to go down. But for Black and African-Americans, they're experiencing both high hesitancy and high rates of uh, reported fear. So I think one lesson here is that race and racism don't just shape hesitancy, but also the reasons why someone might be hesitant. So, you know, a kind of a, a one takeaway for me uh, after finishing this was that, you know, there's really no universal explanation for hesitancy in a racialized society. And as you said, it, it, it is particularly troublesome, I think, that, that they're experiencing both of these simultaneously. And one way I've kind of come to think about it is it's as if somebody is hanging on to the edge of a cliffside and and the fear of falling is real but so is the concern about whether or not you can trust the rope someone has thrown you or whether you can trust the person who's built or thrown that rope right and so it's a particularly sort of kind of terrifying position that to imagine being in right Yeah, definitely. And I think as researchers and as clinicians, it's really important to understand, you know, the reasons why certain underserved communities might be resistant or reluctant to to grab that rope and to participate in research or, you know, um, in this case, um, take a COVID-19 vaccine. And yeah, I think, you know, and building trust with those communities will really, I think, help a lot. And and your work is really good really highlights that and showcases that. One thing I thought it was interesting, uh, my work in Montana, um, when you look at vaccination rates um, in Native American communities in Montana, it's actually really good. Um, A number of, there's been a lot of efforts, at least with the communities that I know in Montana to really get people vaccinated, particularly elderly, um, the elders who, you know, have a lot of the traditional knowledge and and stories and really making a big push to get those people vaccinated. And I find it really interesting that there's such differences in hesitancy across ethnic groups. Yeah, absolutely. I've been hearing about, you know, the great work being done and that Native American and Indigenous communities have been really learning the way, leading the way, and so to speak, and potentially, you know, much that can be learned from those efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so stepping away from race as the primary factor, um, although they're both intertwined, how did education factor into your findings? Yeah, so I think at least myself, I can't speak for my co-authors, but I was kind of expecting a fairly simple story about the relationship between education and hesitancy. I thought that, you know, as education level increased, hesitancy would 
decrease at each subsequent level of attainment. But instead, we found a bit more complex relationship where those with a college degree had the lowest levels of hesitancy, but that was followed by those with a high school degree or less. And it was those with some college or a technical degree that had the highest rates of hesitancy um, between these education levels. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to speculate, but, and we're still trying to figure this, understand this, and I think more research is needed. But I do think one takeaway is that um, it kind of suggests that the equation for understanding hesitancy isn't really all about information and facts and education as we sometimes like to think. And, and if it were that way, that would be really nice. Like education, like we could just inform and educate and everything could be solved. But I think what we're coming to see as the literature develops on this is that hesitancy is also about feelings and trust and the social meanings that we attach to vaccines, as well as um, sort of, you know, past experiences and historical legacies of medical racism. Definitely. It's a really complex problem. Yeah. In discussing your results, you pointed to at least one concrete outcome from your study. Um, what has the study achieved so far and what hopes do you have moving forward? And then a follow-up, what steps can those in the medical field take to address these inequities? Yeah, so this is um, this is a hard question, the, the second piece of that, but I'll do my best. In terms of what has happened since the study, um, UAMS did develop a mobile vaccination clinic to make vaccination a bit more convenient to reduce as much as we could what barriers might exist. And we've also been partnering really closely with community-based and faith-based organizations across the state to hopefully build trust, identify types of communication and messaging that might work best for each community. And so, you know, we meet regularly with community members to get their input, get their feedback on some of the early findings that, that we're looking at, and sort of just get a better understanding of what day-to-day -day looks like, you know, in, in many of these communities and what kind of conversations are happening. If our thinking based off of the research that we're doing resonates at all with what they're seeing um, and hearing. So and now to try and tackle this a uh, little bit more difficult question of how inequalities can be addressed. My training is in sociology. I'm a medical sociologist. And so I, I tend to think any inequality is largely driven by structural factors. Um, at the same time, the structures don't come out of nowhere, right? Humans are, act, human action is making them. So we can change them. Um, and, and some are harder to change than others. <laughs> but, you know, something like having a community advisory board may sound simple. And I think maybe a lot of people would not be sure how that relates to structure. But in my mind, it really does kind of flip the existing hierarchy of who is listening to who. And I think that is a really important first step, not just to build trust per se, but also a good first step in terms of becoming trustworthy medical professionals and institutions that can show some humility towards these communities, like in, in the way that we interact with these communities to the degree that we're not just always talking at them or to them, but also listening to them. 
And so I think that there's much more that would have to be done beyond that, right? It, it can't just be listening that leads to nothing. Um, actions have to happen from that. But I think that those actions need to be rooted in, in what we're hearing from those communities themselves. So I think it, that piece is really fundamental in my mind. That's uh, very interesting what you talked about, community advisory boards and how some people may think they're simple. Um, we have one for our uh, precision medicine research project, project with um, an American Indian community that I work with here in Montana. And those meetings are some of the hardest parts about my research, especially in the beginning when we were just getting started and they didn't know me and my team or trust us. And, you know, it's some pretty uncomfortable conversations as a researcher. And sometimes that's, that's a hard place to put yourself in. So I agree, they are far from simple, <laughs> but yeah. really, really essential to, to have an increasing research for underserved population. Absolutely. And actually, I should, I should give some credit here to um, my, my colleague and co-author, Pearl McElfish. She has really been kind of the person that's done a lot of the groundwork, building community relationships uh, here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, and also, um, Kenesha Bryant-Moore has been really really great at doing community engaged work watching watching the work that they do and learning from it has been really fabulous but I, I do want to give credit where it's due and say I'm I'm still a novice in this uh, piece but I I agree with you it, I've been really fascinated and impressed with scholars and researchers who are able to implement th that piece into their work yeah, it's, um, it is some of the hardest part of research, but it's also the most rewarding. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much, Don. Um, is there anything else, any other final thoughts that you have before we close out? Um, I, I don't have anything else. Um, thank you very much. It was great speaking with you all today. I do want to add really quickly that the study was a, a team effort. So um, I already mentioned my co-authors, uh, Pearl McElfish and Kenesha Bryant-Moore, but also Jennifer Anderson, James Selig, Chris Long, Holly Felix, Jeff Curran, just a wonderful team to be working with. Their contributions to this were really essential as well. So I'm excited to, to be able to, to talk about it a bit with you all. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you, Don and Erica. This has been a very enlightening and I think necessary discussion, and I'm sure it's given everyone listening a lot to think about and hopefully act on. I appreciate you both taking the time to join us today. For our listeners, you can find Don's published paper on CTS's homepage in the Wiley Online Library, and we'll also be posting a link in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening to Clin Farm Pod. Be sure to check out past episodes while you're here and remember to visit ASCPT.org for updated podcast releases, our latest webinars, and the most recent issue of all three journals.